when I was in college in conducting class, our uh, band conducting teacher told us if you ever get lost while you're conducting a piece of music, just wave your arms so the music stops. And I, I guess it's that way when you're playing piano too. Just keep on playing till the music stops and keep on going when it don't. That's, uh, thank you, Miss Mary, for all you guys do. Our music was wonderful this morning. Thank you for for helping in that and leading us in our music. You know, there's been many books written on worship. I've got several on my shelves, and you can go to most any Christian bookstore, and there'll be a whole uh, page on how we ought to worship and worship styles and that kind of thing. But I believe that one of the best chapters ever written on worship was penned by God through the prophet Isaiah. And if you have your Bible this morning, Isaiah chapter 6 is going to be our text. There's 13 verses there, and Lord willing, we'll look at all of them before we're finished. Acts cha- or Isaiah, rather, chapter 6. We started this idea of looking at worship last week, and as we continue this week, I want us to understand up front, while we look at the concept of worship, we are not discussing the order of worship. Should we do the announcements at the beginning of the singing or at the end of the singing? Uh, we're not talking about times of worship. Should we worship at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock? We're not talking about the style of worship, whether we use hymns, whether we use a PowerPoint, whatever it is we might use to help us worship. That's not what we're talking about. God has left those things up to us to figure out how we're going to what we call do church for whatever fits a local body. But what we are discussing is the fact this morning that God and God alone is worthy of our worship. Uh, the word worship comes from a compound word that basically means worship. In other words, who is worthy of our worship? It's, it, we're worshiping something or or someone that is worthy, and that fact, true worship involves much more than what goes on in our church building between 11 o'clock and 12 o'clock on Sunday morning. That's only a small part of our lives in worship. So as we look at this idea of worship, Isaiah 6 is a wonderful example of who we are worshiping, what our attitude should be when we encounter the one whom we're worshiping, and finally, what should our response to worship be? Today's lesson is going to be a breakdown of Isaiah 6. We're going to look at Isaiah 6 again next week and try to make some practical application out of it, but today I want us to look at Isaiah chapter 6, and let's read our text. Isaiah 6, beginning at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitants. The houses are without a man. The land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away and the forsaken places of many in the midst of the land. But yet a tenth will be in it and will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down. So the holy seed shall be its stump. So first of all, as we look at when God came to church, because that's what happens to Isaiah, Isaiah goes to the temple to worship, and when Isaiah gets there, the God shows up. And the question I want to ask us today is, when we come to worship, put yourself in Isaiah's shoes, what would you do if God showed up today? We're going to look at that a little bit. First of all, verses 1 through 4 tell us who we are worshiping. Verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died. Understand that Israel, both Israel and Judah at this time had, are in a period of militarily that are strong. Uh, they are in a time of prosperity. Things are going well for them materially. But things have gotten deplorable spiritually. Uh, the people of Judah, the people of Israel are worshiping false gods. They are worshiping Baal. They are worshiping Ashtaroth. They are worshiping their stuff. They are worshiping things other than Jehovah God. They are worshiping gods and goddesses other than, Jeho than the Jehovah God. And So we get a very definite time here. Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe lifted the, uh, filled the temple. Imagine with me, if you could, if you walked in the back door, or the front door, rather, and as you walked in, you saw God sitting on his throne. And the train of his robe filled the room. And his glory was, was in the room. And above it, above the throne, stood seraphim, angels, 
And we don't know how many angels there were here, how many seraphim. When John sees seraphim in Revelation 4, he sees hundreds and hundreds and thousands and probably millions of seraphim. We know there's at least two because it says they cried out. But notice that it says they had, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. So that's uh, sort of weird. He had, they all have six wings. So picture that. Here you come into the church. First thing you see is God and his glory. And the train of his robe is all through the building. And there's a seraphim on this side with six wings. And a seraphim on this side with six wings. And they shout back and forth, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And if that wasn't enough, the post on the door starts shaking. And the whole church building starts to shake. If you were Isaiah, what would you think at this point? Would you pass out? Would you go back the way you came? Would you think, well, maybe I don't need to be in church after all? Can I tell you that more than anything else, or as much as anything else, as a pastor, I pray that the Holy Spirit fills this place when we worship God on Sunday morning. I hope the Holy Spirit fills your heart and with my heart and fills my heart. But how would we react if God were to show up? couple of things. We would probably be awed. But could you imagine if you weren't here that day and everybody told you about it when they got home? Think, man, uh, my band director in college, we, uh, we play, I was part of the jazz band and uh, a lot of playing jazz is improvisation and Sometimes when you improvise, if you're not careful, sometimes you take off and improvise more than you need to and get off in a different key. And one of our trumpet players did that one time, and the band director said, uh, you have to apologize. You just never know what you're going to hear when you come to a jazz band concert. And so can I say that is true with the Lord as well? We want God to show up the way we want him to show up in a nice peaceful way in our hearts where we, we feel good and we feel uplifted and we feel energized and we clap and we sing and we lift our hands and everything's wonderful. What if he showed up like this with angels shouting, Holy, holy, holy. Notice how that's who we're worshiping. That's the God we're worshiping, y'all. The same God that showed up at church in Isaiah's day, that's who we're worshiping today. And should he choose to do it, he can show up that way. He's got every right to do that. But as the angels are shouting, holy, 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 and the door starts shaking, and the building starts to shake and rumble, notice Isaiah's response. 
Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. What Isaiah realized is, as these folks, angels, were shouting, Holy, 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 to the God that was front and center in the temple, Isaiah understood that God was holy and he was not. And he says, oh brother. That's how we say it in our language today. Oh brother. If you were to walk in the door, if I was to walk in the door, and God's glory filled this church building, I'd be thinking, oh brother. This is a holy God. Why are we here this morning? Who are we worshiping? Some folks come to see and be seen. A lot of folks come to be entertained. Some folks come because somebody made them. Many come that just because it's what they've always done on Sunday morning. After all, we live in the Bible Belt. We're supposed to go to church. That's what we do on Sunday morning. Good old American folks going to church on Sunday. The real reason we should be here in worship this morning is because the God of the universe is worthy of our worship. And that's why we're here. Now, yes, we get uplifted. Yes, we get encouraged. Yes, we get our shot bar to help us live our week. But the real reason that we are here is to celebrate and worship the creator of the universe. That God who truly is holy, holy, holy. And I, can I remind you of this? Can I make you a promise this morning? If we will come with the proper motives, we don't have to wonder whether or not God is here and whether or not we'll encounter him. He's going to be here. Keep your spot here in Isaiah and go to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, this is a very familiar verse. And sometimes we take this verse out of context. This, the whole context of this verse is, how do we deal with a sinning brother? If a brother or sister is sinning, how do we deal with them? What are we supposed to do? And he points out in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him. And then if he won't listen, then uh, take with you one or two more. And if he refuses to hear them, uh, then take it before the church. Verse 19, he says, Again I say to you that if two of you agree on the earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. The context of this verse we're fixing to read in verse 20, the context of it is dealing with a sinful brother or sister and the fact that just not one person needs to bring charges before a person in front of the church. There needs to be more, needs to be two or three people doing that. It needs to be more than just a one-on-one -on -one thing. But then the verse there in verse 20, 
For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I, I am there in the midst of them. Now we've used this verse, and it's, it's an application from this verse, that when there are two or more gathered together in Jesus' name, Jesus is here with us. And what we've said for years is that we don't have to have a big church to worship God, that if there are just two here, uh, they are, uh, we're there, Jesus is there with us. Just a couple of things. I did want you to see the context of that verse. That verse is not specifically and mainly talking about worship, although we can make that application. But notice another phrase in verse 20, where two or three are gathered together to listen to music. Where two or three are gathered together to converse and fellowship. Where two or three are gathered together in my name. The reason I can make a promise is if we worship with the right motives, God will show up. It's because Jesus says so. If we will worship in his name, worship him, come to church for the right reasons, to worship a God that is holy, God will be here. 2,000 people can come together, but if the motivation and purpose is wrong, God's not going to be there, no matter what the worship style is. Rest assured that if we come worshiping God, no matter the size of our congregation, no matter how we do church, our worship's going to be powerful because God will be here. And then we see Isaiah's response he, when he's reminded of his holiness. He was also reminded of his unworthiness. Can I tell you something this morning, y'all? God is here. God is here. And he is just as holy as he was in Isaiah's day. We might not see angels saying, holy, 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 but they're in the throne room singing, holy, 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 all the time because God is holy. God is here. God is holy. And I'm convinced that one big contributor to, contributor to our powerless worship is the fact that we have lost the awesomeness and the holiness of the God we worship. I'm convinced that the biggest reason we've done that is because our worship services have become commonplace, ritualistic, and consumer-driven. Now what do I mean by the term consumer-driven? It means we design our church services to whatever makes us happy. The kind of music we like kind of chairs we like, the kind of building we like, the kind of lighting we like. And when we start making worship about us instead of about God, God's going to leave the building. Y'all remember the phrase they like to say at Elvis concerts, Elvis has left the building? There are an awful lot of churches this morning thinking they're worshiping God, but God has left the building. 
because they make it about them rather than about him. We're not the only ones to do this. We're just the latest ones to do this. While you're in Matthew, flip back a chapter to Matthew chapter 17. And we'll start with about verse 1. Matthew 17 verse 1. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. Then Moses answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Do you notice that when Peter, James, and John see Jesus in all of his glory, they see Elijah, they see Moses, and they're not worshiping yet. Now, Peter feels like he ought to say something. Because when you see, after all, Jesus in his glory and Moses and Elijah, somebody ought to say something somewhere, right? So Peter says, uh, uh, Lord, maybe we ought to build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Elijah, one for Moses, and then suddenly a bright cloud, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came down out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. When the disciples hear that, then they hit their knees. When the disciples hear the voice of God coming out of the sky, This is my beloved Son, down on their knees they went. It took the voice of God to get Peter, James, and John on their knees. What's it going to take to get us to our knees? What does God have to do? I'm convinced Jesus had become just one of the guys with the apostles. He was a teacher. He was was a good guy. And then Jesus has to take Peter, James, and John up to the Mount of Transfiguration. Let them see his glory. And hear that voice. And I promise you what was going through their minds, the same thing that was going through Isaiah's mind. Holy, holy, holy is God and I'm not. And they fall down and they worship God. Somebody says, well I've been going to worship service for 20 years. And can I say, And quite often in those 20 years of worship service is dry as dust because we have lost the awesomeness of who God is. 
We forget who we are worshiping. Y'all, he's God. Jehovah. Yahweh. This is the same God that put the sun in the sky. Put stripes on a zebra. Made that giraffe with a big long neck. Made a duckbill platypus. That's the craziest animal ever was. If you ever want to read about an animal that, that's weird, go read about a duckbill platypus. But God did it. And that's the God we worship. He's not an old man in a rocking chair smoking a pipe up in heaven. He is God. This same God destroyed the firstborn of Egypt. The same God parted the Red Sea. The same God opened up the earth so that Korah and all those guys would get swallowed up because they rebelled against God. The same God struck down the priests Nadab and Abihu because they offered strange fire. This same God killed Uzzah when he reached out and touched the Ark of the Covenant. Y'all, we worship God and he is holy. And we are not. And we do well to remember that. So as we go back to Isaiah, who are we worshiping? We're worshiping a holy God. What should our response be to worship a holy God? He is holy and I am not. Woe is me. Now look at God's response. Verse 5, Isaiah says, Woe is me, I am unclean lips. I dwell among a people that have unclean lips. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Basically, what uh, God tells Isaiah is this. You're right. You're not holy. You're right. You have unclean lips. But I'm going to cleanse you. And one of the seraphim that was shouting, Holy, 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 flew down, took a hot coal, and touched Isaiah's lips and cleansed them. When God looks at us, He's holy, we're not. But He says, I'm going to send my son. To give you his holiness. If you can give him your sin. He'll give you his holiness. And just like he cleansed Isaiah. He cleansed us. When God sees us. He sees us as righteous. Not because of us. Because of what Jesus did. We never need to think that we are holy as God is. The only reason we have anything is because of God's amazing grace. 
It's amazing that God saved me. But it's even more amazing to me when I mess up after he saved me, he still loves me. And he still forgives me and he still uses me. And even though we have been cleansed, we never need to forget. Even though we've been declared righteous, that he is still God and we're not. Let's don't forget that. Because when we forget that, that worship starts becoming ordinary. Ladies and gentlemen, God's here this morning. And he's worthy of your worship. I'm not. He is worthy and we're not. He's worthy and your pastor's not. He's worthy and your musicians are not. God is here this morning in all of his glory and his holiness. He's holy. He's worth our worship. But what's God's response to Isaiah's uh, or two, God responds to Isaiah's unclean lips. What is Isaiah's response to an encounter with God? Verse 8. I, that's Isaiah, heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Interesting in this, a lot of, a lot of folks stop at verse 7, but there's a lot left in this encounter. Verse 8 there, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Notice that word, us. That word is plural. God doesn't say, who will go for me? He says, who will go for us? That's the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We encountered that in our Sunday school class this morning as well. That I said, here am I, send me. As you're reading your daily Bible readings, pay attention to the Old Testament. How many times when God speaks to someone, when God says, Abraham, Abraham says, here I am. When God speaks to Moses, Moses, here I am. When God spoke to Samuel, Samuel said, here I am. Now God speaks to Isaiah, and Isaiah says, here I am. Send me. Let me go. I know this is the Old Testament, but God's always needed his missionaries, amen? And he tells Isaiah to go. You go and you tell this people about me. When God cleanses us, he wants to send us. He doesn't cleanse us for our benefit, although we get the benefit. He cleanses us so we can go out and tell others about him. He cleanses us so we can go tell others about this great God that made a difference in our life. Y'all, hearing a great musical group, chances are that's not going to change your life. Now, you may hear a message in a song, you might hear the gospel in the song, and that might change your life. 
But a music group can't change your life. A good speaker, while he can motivate you and he can teach you, he can't say change your life. But God can. And if you've been born again, God has. And if he has, he's asking the question, who shall I send for us? Do you realize how much of a privilege and a blessing it is for God to use us in his work? God's God, we're not. God has the power to say, okay, everyone that I'm going to call and be saved, he can go. You're saved. Instead, God has given his apostles in the New Testament, his preachers, his prophets. He, he has this crazy notion that he wants humans to go share the message. He wants humans to be his spokespeople. Here am I. Send me. Our response should be like Isaiah's. Here am I, send me. Well, how long do we go? Verses 9 and 10. Isaiah said, or God said, go tell this people. And they'll keep on hearing, but don't understand. They'll keep on seeing, but do not perceive. And he, he says that just preach to them and keep on preaching. Till they say, man, here goes that Isaiah guy again. They get to the point where they're not even listening. Because he says if they would listen, they'd get saved. Well, how long do we preach? Verse 11. Lord, how long? And God answers, till the cities are laid waste without inhabitants, the houses are without a man, and the land is utterly desolate. In this context, Isaiah is telling, God is telling Isaiah that I'm fixing to take Judah captive. You keep preaching until I take them captive. How long do we keep preaching today? How long do we keep sharing? How long do we keep witnessing? Until there's nobody left to witness to. If you have a family member or a loved one or a neighbor or a co-worker that you're praying that they'll be saved and you're witnessing to them and talking to them, you keep on witnessing, you keep on talking, you keep on praying because as long as you have breath and as long as they have breath, they have an opportunity to come to the Lord. Just keep on preaching. And he tells us here, God does, that most folks aren't going to hear. That used to really bother me when I'd preach. And I'd preach my heart out. And every now and then somebody would come forward. But for the most part, people don't. And it finally dawned on me. That I'm not the Holy Spirit. It's up to the Holy Spirit to do the converting. It's up to me to do the sowing and the witnessing and the talking. And that's all we're called to do, y'all. We're not called to grow old New Hope Baptist Church into the biggest church in Fairview. It'd be wonderful if it turned that way. You know what you and I are called to do? You and I are called to go talk about Jesus. To go love on people. Talk about Jesus. And God will take care of the rest of it. Most of them aren't going to hear, but we still need to keep on witnessing till, till Jesus either comes or calls. Keep on working for the Lord. Verse 13, 
He says, even though I'm going to take the people captive, there'll be a tenth that will be in it. There'll be a remnant that will still be in the land. And they'll return, and out of this remnant, they're going to make a tree. And out of this holy seed is going to be the stump. This is a prophecy of Jesus. That even though things are bad, even though things are hard, even though Judah is going to go into captivity, they're going to, I'm going to bring a group back. He says a tenth, a small fraction of Israel is going to be saved. A small fraction of Gentiles are going to be, it's, God's always got the remnant. The majority is usually wrong. The majority is usually out of fellowship with God some kind of way. The majority of the religious people in Jesus' day were not God's children. Matter of fact, Jesus even told some of the leaders, he said, you're of your father the devil. So not everybody's going to listen. But there'll be some that will. When we come to church, God's here. And we get to worship him. Not we have to, but we get to. The God of heaven has invited us to worship him. And we say, oh, I'm, I'm too tired today. Or I've, I've got this going on, or I've got that going on. Worshiping God is a blessing. There's going to be folks worshiping God this morning that they'll be arrested before the day's out. Some of them be killed. But they're worshiping God. When God shows up at church. God's here this morning in all of his majesty. What's your response? What's my response to a holy God that's here? 